sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. I'm delighted to be back after a recent break to the podcast. I was busy working on a really exciting project, setting up my own gym in my hometown, Limerick, Ireland. It's been a great success so far. You can follow us over on Instagram at Treaty Grappling. We have some really interesting guests lined up for the next few episodes, starting with today's guest, multiple time black belt world champion, Gianni Grippo. Gianni spent more than 10 years competing and winning at the black belt level. And he also has some great experience and insight into training in Jiu-Jitsu's Mecca of New York City. So we had a great chat about everything from training in his early days to sports psychology to his future goals. So let's jump into the chat on this week's episode of Inside Position with Gianni Grippo. Hey Gianni, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Man, thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me a couple times. I'm glad you, you followed up uh, and it's good to talk to you, man. Yeah, we finally got it done. I remember actually the first time I came across you, I'd say I was a blue belt at the time and I was training in a really small gym in Ireland now and there wasn't really anyone else who was very passionate about jiu-jitsu like me. So I was doing a lot of studying and learning how, let's say, the pros were training at the time and you were probably one person I came across. I'd say you were either a brown belt or you just got your black belt. It was about 10 years ago. like, And I remember hearing you were doing a lot of drilling, like an hour of drilling before every training all this stuff. So I said, I'm going to give this a go now. So I tried to get people to come in an hour before training and we would kind of go in the very corner of the mat and the coaches just about let us do it and we would drill away for for an hour and stuff. Where did you come to that philosophy or practice? My influences were like Cobrinha and the Mendes brothers, you know, guys that like I wanted to emulate in my division, you know, black belt featherweight. You know, they always just like emphasized drilling and like, going over technique and, and doing it like a certain number of times or really repping it out until it becomes like muscle memory. And for me, like someone that always appreciated spending a lot of time on the mat, you know, maximizing the amount of time I had and, and just, you know, I, I, I appreciate the days where I feel like I put everything I could into my day of training. Uh, that just kind of was in line with my mindset. So I think I was like, you know, I never really started drilling until I was about a brown belt. I didn't even know what the term drilling was. I thought it meant initially like, you know, doing the technique that you see in class and like ripping it out for whatever, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And I thought that's what it meant. But really, it was like taking your own time that you have to like be on the side, work with one person, have particular goals that you wanted to, uh, particular techniques, particular positions you wanted to go over. And um I think it was only until like brown belt that I really started doing that. And, you know, I would drill like an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. And I noticed the difference in my game in about a year where like, say I was a purple belt. I remember this is how I always kind of tell how my game developed. When I was a purple, I can't really tell you what my game was. I think I just, I had okay technique, but I just had a lot of willpower. <laughs> you know, people would say that, like, I think I won worlds at, at purple belt based on just like, a, a few techniques and willpower, you know, and then I spent a good year, like after attending a couple of Mendes Brothers seminars, after like watching Cobrino a lot, learning a lot about leg drags and barambolos and stuff like that. And then I come, I, I drilled them constantly for a year. And from like purple belt worlds to my first year at brown belt, like my game was, you could just see that I had a clear direction of where my game was going. And I attribute that to a lot of drilling. Um, and spending a lot of time just kind of going over a technique over and over again. 
Now, I will say, um, and one thing that I wish I did differently back then, and forgive me if I go on tangents a little bit. One thing I wish I did more of, feel like when I was younger, I used to drill very robotically where I always felt like, okay, if I hit a certain number of reps, then I'm just obviously going to get better. But sometimes there wasn't so much of like, I don't think I put as much thought into it. Like, oh, where could this lead to? Where does this branch off to? And yeah, I would probably discover it in training, but I wouldn't necessarily drill it. I would just drill uh, for reps a lot of the time. And I don't know, that might have like slowed my development. Whereas I feel like if I was a little bit more pro at like mentally engaged in my drilling, I think I would have actually improved in a quicker, in a faster period of time. So like, it was a good thing. I think I improved a lot, but I definitely could have actually done better as well. That was around the time as well when the Barambolo was starting to be really popular and all the lower belts were starting to do it. That was kind of a move that benefited a lot from drilling, I find. A lot of the people who love drilling, they would just go in and do Barambolos for an hour. But there's something good about that focus as well. Like sometimes now if we have open mat at the gym and I just tell everyone, okay, drill whatever you want, I kind of look around and I see each round someone is drilling something different and they don't really develop too much focus in like one area but if I see a couple of people drilling and they're doing the exact same thing for the full 40-45 minutes you can always tell that they're probably going to be the people who are going to improve a little bit quicker just by having that focus on one thing for a longer period of time. Yeah so that's what I always would tell people that would be like drilling alongside me or something like that. So I remember at Marcelo's like, no one really drilled. Everyone just kind of sparred and stuff like that. And that was fine. A lot of people were very good there. But I think once I got there back in like 2013, I think a lot of people started like kind of seeing how, like seeing how I drilled and how I approached training. So a lot of people started like, there was like a drill corner at Marcelo's. And then the drill corner started getting more crowded with other groups to the point where they're all getting in my way, which was super annoying. But what I would tell them is I like to say I would do a five minute round. We go back and forth with me and my partner five minutes. And I would always have like a singular focus for the most part. Say I did five, five minute rounds. It was all at least around one position, one situation. Whereas sometimes I'd see other people, they'd be doing like guard passes and then they'd be playing guard and then they'd be doing escapes and the takedowns. I'd be like, guys, you know, what, what are you really getting out of that? You're doing a lot. You're getting just maybe a, a little better at a bunch of different things instead of really focusing on getting better in one particular spot. So yeah, I think that's super important. Spending the whole session on, on one particular position or situation, I think is super beneficial. You mentioned Marcelo's there, but even before that, you started off training in Henzo Gracie Academy, kind of before it was the cool thing to do, before the DDS and all this stuff. And you, you were probably doing more gi and everything then. How was it training back then? And who were some of your influences? Like, were you training much with Danaher, Sean Williams? How was the training there at the time? Man, it's funny talking about Henzo's because at first I'm like, oh, that wasn't too long ago. And, but now I think about it, if you look at it in different perspectives, it feels like a lifetime ago. Like I, the last time I was there was uh, about 10 years ago, at least. What did it leave? 2013? It's, yeah, 10 years, 10 years. That's nuts. But I spent like, my preteens and teen years there. And uh, actually the first person that I saw when I went into Henzo's when I was 10 was uh, Donaher. He was teaching a private and, you know, like, like, you know, nothing really changed. He was there like all the time. Um, but yeah, when I first got to Henzo's when I was 10, like the three main instructors were Sean Williams, John Donaher and uh, Henzo himself. And I mean, that's a, that's a sick crew to, to start with. 
I was a little young to like work with those guys. I, I mostly just did like privates on the side. There were no kids programs when I first started. But yeah, those guys were big influences, even if I wasn't learning from them directly. And then even as I got older, um, I started taking some classes with with John Moore. And um, luckily, he liked me. You know, sometimes he was John's an interesting character where if he doesn't if he doesn't care for you right away, you know, it's kind of hard to like get in his good graces, you know. So luckily, he I think he saw like my interest and my real like enthusiasm for improving so he uh he was always willing to help me out and this is like before he had dds at that point uh he was like more invested in like mma he was coaching guys like gsp helping out other guys like frankie edgar and chris wyben was even there too and a, a bunch of other uh real big ufc fighters at that time so that was probably honestly uh the reason why i didn't stick around was because i felt like it was more like mma focused Whereas it's kind of funny, and then not too long, not too long after I left, then they started focusing on jujitsu. I was like, "Damn, you know, who knows where my career would have, uh, where how things would have been different if I decided to stay there." But uh, you know, it is what it is. So you wouldn't have predicted the way it turned out. Was Gary Tonin or anyone training there at the time as well? Yeah, so I actually trained with Gary. We were like pretty regular training partners. He only showed up there once or twice a week because that guy. I think he started showing up more, but he was crazy because where he lived in New Jersey was pretty far from Manhattan. So I think at first you could only get him to come in like once or twice a week. And it was funny to think now, but we were, most of our sessions were like in the gi, you know, and we even competed against each other once at Brown Belt in the gi as well, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah, I love training with Gary. He was a lot of fun to work with. I, and I guess I could see how his game was because like me like i say i was really big on drilling really being a little bit robotic but his game like if i if we had like a technique of the week that i would show in competition training and we would drill it gary would never do the same technique the same way twice he, he was just like kind of all so i don't know if like drilling was really his thing because his game is kind of so open and free that it was hard to get him to do a, a single thing the same twice you know but it, it different strokes for different folks right you know obviously he made his style and his approach work incredibly well for him and the lads over there are kind of notoriously outspoken i would say did they give you a hard time when you left to go over to marcelo's yeah a, l a lot of the brazilians especially i think it's different now i think if i did that like 10 years later it would probably be a little bit easier but even like even uh looking back at it um i I probably didn't handle it the right way either. I was like 20 years old and I, I, I left, I remember because someone, you know, besides wanting to like be more focused on just jujitsu, I think someone like pissed me off and I kind of just left without, I kind of left without really saying much. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go to Marcelo's and, you know, F them. And, and then I realized I'm like, no, you spent, you know, now I look back at it. I'm in my thirties. I'm like, man, you spent 10 years plus with these guys, you know? Regardless of whether you had a little bit of a, you know, you're annoyed with someone, you got to let, you can't let your emotions take over. Um, and I kind of let my emotions take over and I just didn't really handle it the right way. I think it was a good decision for me. I have no regrets, but, but the approach definitely could have been better. So I, I feel like uh, a little bit of the heat, maybe it was a bit much at some points, but the heat was warranted in some ways. Uh, but thankfully, you know, I think 95% of the people uh are, are we're, we're all cool now so that's cool 
I guess jiu-jitsu people spend so much time together with their team. There's always a bit of cabin fever going around. I even think about it now and I'm like, you know, there's been guys who have been on in on my team, whether it be at Marcelo's or what I've done over the last couple of years on my own, who have come and gone, you know, because of their situations. And you know what? I, I get, I don't, I don't hate on them, but I, I do feel butthurt for a little while. <laughs> I am kind of like hurt on the inside. So now I understand where other people come from when someone else leaves. So. I think that gives me the perspective when I look back. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I probably could have, you know, handled that differently. Getting over to Marcelo's then, was it like welcome straight away or was everyone kind of trying to show you, oh, this gym is better than your old gym? How was the feeling there? Because you had a very different style as well compared to a lot of the people over there. Everyone, it was all cool. There was no like animosity, but they definitely, I definitely felt like that first week was like one of the more intense weeks of training in my life. I remember uh, just everyone I went with seemed to, you know, you kind of come in. And I was a brown belt at the time, not that I was some hot shot or anything. But I, I had enough of a resume to where, you know, guys knew who I was. But it was good. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a friendly environment right from the start. It wasn't like, I don't think anyone was trying to prove anything. They were just, you know, coming after me, seeing what this new blood is like. Uh, I remember Bernardo, I, I trained with Bernardo Faria for the first time and he like, tapped me like three times with like his top half knee bar, like the knee bar that he gets from when he's in. I'm like, dude, I get it. After the second time, I'm like, please stop. <laughs> I get it already. You're, you, you're better at this than me. But at the same time, even with the beatings I took, like they were all very helpful. Like Marcelo was always helping me. Bernardo was always helping me. Uh, Paul Schreiner, who's a great coach there. He was helping me a lot. And then uh, all the guys that I was originally training with who were close to my age, uh, Jonathan Satava, uh, Mancher Kara, Mateus Denise, uh, and then later on Marcos Tinoco and, and Dylan Danis. All of them like would always train hard with me, but they were, you know, it was all very respectful and like on on good terms, you know. And how was it training back then, trying to make a bit of money through the sport or training full time? Like, how did you handle that aspect? It can't have been too easy training in New York. And especially at the time then, there wasn't big prize money. I'm sure there wasn't massive sponsorship. How did you manage that side of it? Sometimes I don't know. <laughs> I really, I really <laughs> don't know. You know, I hustled a good amount for seminars. You know, I taught a few classes here and there. Cheap apartments, you know, not really doing too much. I don't, I don't, I don't spend luxuriously you know i'm not i wasn't going on any crazy vacations competing whenever i could you know for money that was pretty much it I, you know sometimes i wonder you know a couple sponsors that were paying a little bit here and there and you know just making sure that i wasn't you know overspending but i don't think it i you know it's funny it's a good question because i really don't know how i did it you know seeing like how how pricey and how expensive just living in new york and new jersey can be but i was never really like scared financially so i don't <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I guess I was, uh, you, you, it was a good trip. I will say was every year I competed in Abu Dhabi at the world pro in the Gi. And, uh, man, I had to win that every year because the, 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 the pay out there was really good. And that would be like a good, like half of the year worth of rent. If I won, I remember there was one year where I didn't win. I was like, Oh my God, this sucks. You know, uh, the first time that I, the first time that I didn't medal, like and there was like no money coming from that i was like oh man now i need to really hustle i need to start teaching more seminars again that was like the deal as soon as i lost that i messaged a bunch of people I'm like hey what do you think about having me out for a seminar trying to like pimp myself you know so i can so i can make up that money lost 
that was probably the first big black belt tournament I did as well was the World Pro actually and I got through to the semi-final and uh, Paolo Miao beat me but I remember being so sickened because I missed out on so much prize money and for me at the time like I was like maybe 23 years old just got my black belt and I was like yes I'll, I'll get this bit of money now. What year was that? Was that 2016? That was 2018 I think. Oh 2018 and then I fought him in the final. The sickener about that one was Paolo was actually suspended from IBJJF at the time for testing positive for stuff. That was a good experience like I'd only been a black belt I'd say maybe six months. No that's a that's an awesome experience. I I remember that was kind of like similar for me as well. Like I remember I got my black belt and then like two weeks after getting my black belt like one of my first tournament well my first tournament was Europeans in 2014 and my second or third match was with Hoffa Mendez, you know, so kind of having that experience, you know, early on is, you know, it shows you what the level can be like. And it, it, it makes you work hard, you know, because, you know, you're like, if you, I guess maybe if you start on a lower tier, you don't really think, ah, oh, okay, I'm fine. But then you get that, you get that upper echelon of level and you realize, okay, I need to step it up. You know, it kind of shows true, you what's out there. You'll never fall too far below that level then. But you're someone who competed a lot like throughout the years. How do you approach game planning or mindset or anything to competition? And maybe what kind of things have you learned throughout the years? Because you've probably had as many matches as anyone in the sport. I've probably been through all the different routines because I'm always like adjusting. And I don't think there's ever a time where I like settle for like, this is one way that I do things and it's the only way that I can do it. I'm always open for adjustment. I'm always open to like, learning different ways from people because i feel like just because something a routine before a tournament worked for you before i don't know how to explain it but it doesn't always mean it's going to work the next time and i one example was like i remember i had like an attitude that one my first year at black belt i made the final at, at gi pans and i thought that was a big deal and i try i remember going into another tournament after that i tried to mimic like my mindset i tried to mimic like my attitude and my, and my, you know, just was I serious? Was I, I don't know. I forget how I was that day. It was so, so long ago now, but, um, I remember just trying to mimic how I felt during a good tournament. And I tried to just copy how I was and copying how you feel from a good tournament doesn't always necessarily translate. And I talked to a sports psychologist for a long time and we kind of like came up with this. He's like, so basically just keeping it with like mindset, emotions, attitude going into a tournament. He's like, go based on how you're feeling, you know, don't try to force a certain attitude or force a certain way of approaching a tournament. Just if you're feeling a certain way that day. Now, what I mean by that is sometimes you will go to these tournaments and you don't want to talk to anybody. You just want to be like in the zone, sitting under the bleachers, warming up, just everyone, just in your own world. And sometimes that works, but don't feel like that's going to be like it every time. So maybe there was another time. I remember before Kasai, um, when I when I fought Paulo in the final and I was able to beat him there, I was in like a real like I was in a chill mood. I was in a good mood. I was talking to everyone before. Um, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I should be more serious. I should start like really like getting angry, whatever, getting an attitude, getting pissed off, whatever I need. but. I remember what my sports psychologist said. He's like, no, whatever you're feeling, just go with it. Don't force anything. Just how you feel, just, you know, just take that and go with it. And you know what? I, I was chill. I had a good time that day. And you know what? The results went well. I still was able to win. So I guess what I'm trying to get at 
is I try not to set myself in a particular routine. Um, if I'm feeling a certain way, you know, some, sometimes things change a little bit, um, willing to adjust, not be so set on the routine because say sometimes you go to a tournament and you like to warm up a certain way, but maybe the venue's crowded that there's no warm up area, you know, you, you have to be able to be adjustable and not panic when your mind or your, or your routine that you like before isn't always the way you want it to be. Um, and one last part to that, um, I remember 2018 was a big year for me because I just competed a lot. I think I did about like 70 matches that year. I competed at all the all the major Grand Slam tournaments in the Gi and uh, in Abu Dhabi as well. And I remember that was a great year for me because I went to so many different environments, never really allowed myself to get into a routine because there was always little different things that'd be thrown in my way. And that was great because it I, I just went out there and like, just casual business, you know, didn't really panic when like uh, a routine wasn't the way I wanted it to be initially, yeah. which I think actually was a good thing for me. I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. And I guess it doesn't even make sense really. You're trying to copy an older version of yourself. But did you get much benefit from the the sports psychologist overall? The guy that I talked to is he, he's amazing. And you know, it's funny. I still like we haven't spoken a while just because of schedule, but I, I miss the guy. I really miss, I, I need you know after this, I need to text him, you know, because I, I've, I've missed talking with him. But, you know, he would give me like certain ideas to, of like how to approach like training or training or competing. But he was good because he was never like pressing anything on me. You know, he'd be like, hey, try this. And it would be like we would uh, have things where it was like. I, w I would write down an evaluation sheet after training, like just certain things that I did well, certain things I need to improve so that there was never really a session that was like too good where you kind of think you, you always find things that went good and needed working on in training. And then it helped you create goals for the next training. And you know what? It worked for a while. And then after a while, I'm like, man, I feel like I'm being too robotic. I feel like I'm just taking notes because I feel like I have to. And he's like, okay, let's try something else. And And so he always just like, kept giving me different ideas and some things stuck and some things didn't. Um, one thing that was always great for me that, that like the first thing I think about when I, whenever I talk about a sports psychologist is that um, I think when I was at the lower belts, I was always focusing too much on my competition. Now you have to study a little bit. Um, I think it's good to have an idea of your opponent, but I think I was getting too caught up with what my opponents were doing, how they were training, what their technique was like. And I always felt like I would have to adjust my game based on what they were doing. And he would start telling me like, just basically this, like focus on what you can control, focus on your training, focus on being in the best mental state you can be. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing because at the end of the day, all you're trying to do is enforce your game on your opponents anyway. You know, um, if you focus too much on what they're doing, you're not giving yourself the energy to focus on what you need to be doing. It's just kind of wasted, wasted energy worrying about what other people are doing. And that just made life like <laughs> life training, competing just so much simpler when I wasn't training, thinking about how my opponents were training, or I wasn't worrying about anything else. I was just focused, staying in my own little world, my own bubble. It just kept things like simple for me. And I think simple has always been been better at least for me i even remember hearing dustin poirier talking about something similar before he was saying an exercise his sports psychologist would get him to do is before camp he would write down like a small circle and a big circle around it and in the small one he'd write down all the things that he can control every day and then in the big one he'd write down the other things and then he would just focus on the middle circle and he'd kind of write it out every morning 
and it would just remind him, don't worry about all the other nonsense. It seems like there is more intrusive nonsense these days as well, because you have more information about what other people are doing. It was nearly better off when you were just on your own in your gym training. Would you ever find it hard to implement the stuff, the like the advice you would get? He always did a pretty good job at like, first of all, telling me to stay off social media as much as possible. <laughs> which was always good. But also I think as I've gotten older, just naturally I look at it and I don't really take anything too seriously. But I see everyone always looks super good online. You know, you look at Flow Grappling and, you know, you see your competition competing at these events and they look incredible. But I've had enough experience to where like, I think there's been a lot of people that I've fought and not saying that like the, the Mendes brothers and like Cobrilla weren't amazing. But I remember I went in with seeing them, watching highlights, going in with such high expectations on how good they are. And of course they were, you know, I, I didn't have great experiences with them, but it never being, never measuring up to the level that I expected. And then afterwards being like, what the hell? Why did I think so highly? I, and I felt like I kind of didn't give myself enough respect, you know? So now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, these guys can look amazing online, but I, I think maybe this just comes with experience, but I trust myself enough to know that one, I'm good too. And two, however they look outside there in the edited world, you know, it, it, it's not quite as, it's not quite the same once you feel them. And you've been competing at Black Belt now for probably around 10 years. How has your style changed? Because it's difficult to try and stay at the top level year on year on year. I, I do think it's being open to adjustment, you know, open to feeling like you don't know everything. And I think that's super important. I remember, and I, I won't name names, but I always, my dad, who never trained either, but he would just, we would go to Worlds when I was like a blue, purple belt, and we'd watch the black belts. And there was a good period of time where there was a lot of the, just the same results, the same guys getting beat by the same guys, especially when I was looking at Feather and Lightweight. And of course, a lot of these guys were amazing, but I'm like, I, but me, even as a blue belt, I'm like, man, these guys just don't want to make adjustments. They're just willing to live and die by the same game and the same approach that they play and, you know, kind of lose the same way every time. And you just need to be open to being able to, like, open your mind and see what else is out there and different approaches. And, um, you know, even for me recently, an example is, like, I enjoy the sub-only scene. I've always competed a lot in points. But I do enjoy the sub-only scene. It's something that I would like to get better at. So I've, like, tried to find ways to change my training and i find that i i've improved I, I would like to be able to prove it more in competition these days but i feel like i've actually improved by being willing to change my mindset I, it, so in training i used to be so much thinking about points and now i try not to think about points i try to think about like how many different submissions can i get during a session rather than worrying about position so much and even if it means getting put in bad spots and i think of it i'm like hey you know what that gives me an opportunity to feel comfortable, get out of bad position. Um, you know, so it's it's just a lot of time spent like being willing to change your approach and not be so stubborn with what you've always known. And also outside of competition, um, man, who the hell wants to do the same thing for 10, 15, 20 years? Man, uh, I, I would have guys that I would train with. There was there's one guy that I know that has like the most incredible close guard I've ever felt. He used to like tap. He used to tap Marcelo from close guard. Like, because he, if he got you in close guard, it was like over. And then it was also a weird game because it would be vice versa. It would be the other way where if you got, if he got you in your own close guard, he was so good at Sao Paulo passing and just pressuring from there. 
but the thing is like you would do the same thing every day and i'd be like man where is the fun in this okay great you, you're amazing at it but what's the enjoyment of doing the same thing every day so yes sometimes i would change my game for competition and because you need to evolve and people become familiar but man i probably would have quit like five years ago if i kept doing the same thing because what's the what's the fun in it after a while yeah. And even just tra- changing your mindset for the training, as you were saying there, that's kind of like an overlooked thing that people use. If you go in and you're trying to focus on scoring points or staying ahead on points or try and get as many submissions as you can. Or even when I was doing the the combat jiu-jitsu, I, I didn't practice any slaps, but I was imagining that they could punch me or hit me at any time. And it actually just made my game completely different. I was much more urgent. I wasn't like chilling in a position where I could get hit. So I was almost like method acting in practicing for the competition, but it actually worked very well. I didn't really change too much, just the the mindset and the approach to the training. That's right, man. You kill it in that scene. I, I got invited to one once and I didn't take it, but I was kind of nervous. I'm like, I wouldn't know exactly how to train for it. But if I ever take one, I'm definitely going to like ask for a, either a public or a private interview with you <laughs> so I can get some insight on what to do. <laughs> It's good to mix it up, though, as you were saying. How have you found adjusting to the the like leg lock and the nogi revolution of the last few years? I feel like I've half adjusted to the leg lock revolution, where like I, I haven't really become great at leg locks myself. I, I'm like aware I know certain things. I'll I'll get a few once in a while here, but I feel like I've actually been able to kind of take advantage of it based on the guys like attacking my legs more. I, I like sometimes I always wish I was better at like outside passing, but now I've, I've, you know, I'm a little bit better actually passing when I feel like I have a connection with my, with my partner, with my opponent. I can't explain that. I wish it would, you, you'd think that it would be a, a much easier path if you can pass better, like from the outside, like Toriano style, but that's just never really been so much of my game. So, but I feel like I, and I remember when leg locks first came around, I was like really scared. I remember I fought this kid, John Calistina Kasai. And I knew he had good leg locks and I just, I wasn't even really sure how good my defense was. And I remember in the match, like I respected them enough to where I never really put myself in a super bad position. And I realized afterwards, um, I was like, damn, I wasn't so bad. You know, I felt pretty good. I felt like I, I, not that I wouldn't even know how to explain it to people, but I just knew how to put myself in the proper position. And then after a while, I felt like I was able to use it to counter and start like taking the back, getting leg drags off of leg locks. So I always feel like I'm fighting on a fine line. You know, I'm fighting <laughs> like like I'm I'm walking across very thin ice, but I feel like I've got a I was able to get a pretty good handle of like like absorbing leg lock attempts and being able to turn into attacks. So I kind of feel like I had a little bit of a different a little bit of a different development than than most others when it comes to the leg lock evolution. Like I say mostly mostly shitty at them myself will catch a lucky break here and there but for the most part use it to like counter more than anything yeah no i've seen you the last few years with some really nice counters and a lot of like back takes and head and arm chokes which wouldn't really be you wouldn't see that many lighter grapplers doing head and arm chokes have is that something you've always been good at or is it just the last few years like adjusting to people's games and i appreciate you putting up the putting the uh, bringing that up <laughs> because i can i can put in a good plug i just came out with uh, a head and arm instruction on bjj fanatics just on the just on the head and arm and i think it came out really good i'm happy about it but with that it's funny how i actually got pretty good at it because a lot of the leg drags a lot of the barambolos um 
for whatever reason, a lot of the finishes when I would, whenever I was drilling at Marcelo's, a lot of the the finishes to the sequence would end up in a head and arm. You know, we're just kind of at, like in a head and arm, and then your partner turns away, and you can take back or so on and so forth. And then after a while, and I never really actually practiced the actual finish, but I just put myself in the spot over and over again. So I actually naturally just became good at putting myself in the right place so that I didn't even have to squeeze. Like I would just put it, put on the position and I was able to get the tap. Um, so it was a lot more proper body placement and proper positioning and just grips. And I just naturally started becoming better just by just by putting myself there a lot. So maybe the robotic drilling for a little while did actually help. And then I realized, oh, I'm actually tapping a lot of people from this spot. Let me actually try to focus on it more in training and competing and not just use it as a path to like take the back or go elsewhere. At first I was like, okay, well, that is, there's all, that's all there is to it. It's just finishing the head and arm. But then when I, I, I think what was a good development for me was actually training with lower belts and seeing how people defend it or how they react to it. And then you could start finding counters off of, or like submission counters off of how your partner defends. Um, so a lot of the instructional too is not just finishing the head and arm because if I did that, it would probably last about 15 minutes. Um, a lot of it is also like, well, what if a partner reacts by turning away? What if he reacts by certain frames? What if, so you just find all different submissions off of it as well. So it's it's been a nice thing where it's like a strong finish for me, but it's also branched out into a lot of different uh, options as well. But that's also just being very mindful during drilling and during training, which going back to what we talked to talked about earlier on, um, if you know if if I approached drilling like I did ten years ago, maybe I wouldn't I wouldn't have found as many options and counters as I do with it now. That's an important thing that I think everyone should hear as well. It's just being very mindful in training, not just mm. not just always going for the kill in training. Of course, you know, ego, you want to win the round. But I try to emphasize this with almost everyone I work with, not just so that they try to kill me, but also just to get them in the mindset of like, guys, it's, you know, it's not always about winning the round in training, but it's about were you able to put yourself in spots that you're trying to work on? Where did you discover something new? Did something feel different that worked well that you can go back on? Those are the things that you want to t- try to take from training more than anything, because if you're if you're results based, I think it could really like it, it could affect your mind. You know, if you're if you have a bad day of training, meaning like you get tapped a bunch and you allow that to you consider that a bad day, um, you might not last too long either. You might get discouraged and be like, oh, this isn't for me. But if you can have like more micro goals and like, hey, I was able to hit this move or hell, even smaller. I was able to escape this position a lot. I was doing well at escapes from here. You know, those are small wins that keep you coming back for more. And then those small wins are what helps you improve in the in the long run, not just, you know, winning around. Yeah, it's definitely better to focus on the positive things instead of writing down your journal after training. I'm um, shit, I got smashed f- f- six rounds in a row. Write down, like I used to always do, Um, I would just write down what I did for the session. Then I'd write one section done well. And I would just write like five or six bullet points of things I did well. And I, w- I would just forget mm. about the things I didn't do well. Or I might write <laughs> a little star at the bottom. I say, learn how to fix this or, you know, something. But that actually helped a lot. Because then I thought of myself, if I'm consistently seeing day to day to day, the done well is like guillotine, guillotine, guillotine. Then I start to think of myself as someone who is actually good at the guillotine. And it actually translated and then you very it. well then. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that sounds a lot how like, that sounds like how a lot of like my eval sheets, so I call them evaluation sheets. 
I would write down, and, and you know what, most of the time, I, I'm like you. I didn't want to write too many of the negatives. Not even negatives. We didn't, me and my sports, like, we didn't want to call them negatives. It was like, it was like positives and then things to work on. We didn't want to call them negatives. They're not necessarily bad. But I, I just did it. I just had like at least three positives and try to find like three things to work on just so that I would never get too high on myself. Like I had a perfect session. There's nothing to focus on. And also that I wouldn't get too low on myself. So regardless of how bad the session went, I would still try to find three things that went right, even if it was like I tied my belt right. <laughs> you know? uh, sometimes that'd be the only thing that went well, but I would still write it down anyway. It'll be like, okay, well, at least I did that right. How's your training schedule been the last few years? Do you do a lot of jiu-jitsu? Do you do any strength and conditioning? And how have you dealt with things like overtraining or injuries in that time as well? Because that always comes, especially as we're getting older in the sport, you have 20 years worth of training behind you. How have you balanced training enough, but also not breaking yourself down? Yeah, you know what? I've tried to just be more aware of my body, you know? Um, I can't... Man, when I get to Friday, if I've done like 10... 12 sessions in a, or like usually two a days but like by friday saturday if i'm at like that 10th and 11th session i'm feeling it now it's not the same as it was when i was like 23 24 so i i just try to be aware and you know what i used to be so i used to emphasize so much i'm like oh i need to spend six hours on the mat a day and you know back in the day i would but i've come to the point where i'm like you know what if i can get two to three maybe not even three, maybe a good quality. Like sometimes I still just, sometimes I'll just train once a day. If I can get two hours of like a hundred percent mentally focused on training hours a day of training, that is just as effective as someone maybe training six hours, but their mind's not all there for it. And you can keep it up all year as well. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it depends on my schedule. Like if I'm dealing with, you know, gym stuff, this, you know, this coming week or something, I'm like, okay, as long as I can get that morning session in, I'll give it, I'll give or take that evening session. I'm not going to put pressure on it. As long as I do my best at mentally and physically getting the best session I can in those two hours, maximizing that time. And at the same time, I do feel like there is a benefit to having, to having balance in life too, where like, you're not training all day and you just kind of feel miserable and you're like, don't have anything else going for you. Um, I used to think that that was how you had to be, but I do feel like I actually perform better when I allow myself the ability to like do other things in life, you know, or, you know, go out to a dinner once in a while, kind of free your mind. Um, I, I've recently, uh, well, not recently, I've been doing it for about a year, but I enjoy indoor rock climbing. I've been doing that for about a year now. It translates very well to jujitsu too. Good, good for grip strength. But, uh, sometimes there's like an evening, even on a weeknight. Where I'll be like, man, you know what? If I'm not, if I don't have to teach, I don't have to do anything. I'm like, you know what? I'm going, I'm going climbing. You know, it's a, it's a workout of its own. I'm still doing kind of like strength work, and it, it could still translate in, in both mental and physical ways. But it's just like something different. If I feel like I just need to get my mind off, I'll, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I, I definitely think what's changed for me over the last like ten years is not only that I realize I can't physically uh handle the the workload that i used to do but i realized that i don't necessarily need that you know um and i i i feel like as long as i maximize my time when i'm training it's beneficial i i recently had a tournament um i did a, a new york open that they had here and it was kind of like a tester for me because i've been in the process of like 
dealing with a lot of different things. My mind hasn't been so focused on training. And I was like kind of nervous. I'm like, man, I hope I don't get like embarrassed right now because I can't really say like, I can't really say like, um, like I say that all my energy has been on training, but you know what? I will say that like, I've always been training at least two hours a day. My mind, regardless of what's going on outside of my life, when I'm training those two hours, that's where I am. And to be honest, when I competed, I, I felt, I felt fine. I felt great, you know? And I'm like, damn, I didn't have to work eight hours a day on the mat to be able to get to a, a level that I feel good with. I was able to maximize, you know, a few hours a day, make sure I was really focused on that and then take care of whatever business I had off the mat. And I was still able to, to feel like I could perform at a high level. So it was, it was encouraging and also kind of eye opening too, at the same time. And what would be some of your future goals now coming up over the next months to years? Is there anything you're working on particular competition or even just outside for, for normal life? Yeah. So in like the immediate future, I'm looking to open a gym and we, we discussed this a few minutes before we started recording how difficult it could be. So yeah, that, that's been kind of like weighing on my mind. I was hoping to have a gym a couple months ago and then, you know, a, a deal kind of fell through. So I've been kind of back to the drawing boards again. Um, so that's been kind of occupying my mind, but it's funny at the same time. Now people are asking me and, and I know that'll happen one way or another. I'll make it happen, whether it's in a month, two or three. But people are like, oh, when are you going to compete again? And now I compete a little bit recently. I did a few ma local matches. Now I'm getting that itch again. And, you know, people are like, oh, ADCC East Coast trials. Um, so I'll, I'll probably end up doing that. I'll probably end up jumping a couple of things. And, you know, who knows? I, I'm, I'm confident enough that, like, once I get a gym going, like, I'll still be able to, like, maintain training that I want. So uh, probably won't be able to travel as much, but I can at least um, stay somewhat active on the competition scene probably probably those 60 something matches a year are now in the rearview mirror but you know at least be a little bit more exclusive for sure nice so well, i'm looking forward to seeing now you back on the competition scene soon and best of luck with the gym coming up and thanks again for coming on really appreciate it now it was a great chat i know thank you man i appreciate you having me it was fun big thanks to gianni for jumping on the podcast I had some great takeaways from that episode myself, especially on how he evaluates his training sessions afterwards, including some positives and also some things that he has to work on so he stays focused on improving session upon session. It was also interesting to hear about his time spent training at the Henzo Gracie Academy before the DDS and Gordon Ryan came onto the scene. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, share it with your friends and subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. I'd like to say a quick thank you to everyone for the constant support on the podcast and also the recent support in opening my academy treaty grappling over here in Ireland. I really appreciate it all. We'll be back next week with another great guest. So until then, Slánagas Bánacht. <laughs>